Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this special roundtable episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the 2020 presidential race with a special focus on the first debate held earlier this week between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. With me are two authors who specialize in a field known as biopolitics. John Hibbing is the Foundation Regents Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska. He's been named a NATO Fellow in Science and a Guggenheim Fellow. John previously appeared on this podcast in episode number 15, where the focus was on his book, The Secretarian Personality. This time, the focus is more on another of his books, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences, though we'll be covering both of them. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Also with me today is Jonathan Wheeler. Jonathan is the author of Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. Jonathan is the Director of Undergraduate Studies and a Professor of Global Studies at the University of North Carolina. Previous books include Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, as well as Human Rights in Russia, which I imagine could be a a rather short book. Uh, All joking aside, Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, John, I I know you uh, suffered through the the debate on Tuesday. So I uh, naturally was curious about your your first instincts, impressions of uh, that uh, glorious mess we had on Tuesday. Oh, gosh, where to start? Um, Well, like everyone, I guess it's hard not to be struck by the rudeness the uh, unwillingness to follow basic democratic norms, the lack of policy discussion, the kind of futility of Chris Wallace trying to keep the horses in the barn. I, I know Wallace was taking a banging on the Twitterverse, but I kind of felt sorry for him. I thought he, he gave it a good, a good try. And then maybe, you know, this will probably be a lead into what we're going to talk about for the next several minutes. The, this is more the fallout after the debate, I suppose, just the, the sense I had that that people almost watched two different debates. Um, I'm lucky enough to be teaching a class this semester on the 2020 election. So we met yesterday after the debate, and I teach at Nebraska, so that means we've got a pretty good mix of students. We've got some some very liberal students, some middle of the roaders, and some Trump supporters. And just listening to them talk about the the debate, it really drove home. I think what what Jonathan and I will be talking about today that that these things run so deep. That you know the Trump supporters just thought he was uh, wonderful, uh, and the Biden supporters couldn't understand how anybody would have that impression. So that uh, I suppose my final impression, uh, just to get this started from the debate, was how uh, how deep people's predispositions are with regard to politics in America. 
Sure. No, I, I went online to see how people had taken in the debate. And yes, the polarization and as if they had seen two different debates was was absolutely remarkable. Uh, Jonathan, I know you couldn't quite stomach the uh, notion of watching the debate, but I know you also uh, certainly took in reviews and maybe some highlights afterwards. Do you have any first impressions you want to share with us before we plunge deeper into this? Yes, I, I know in some ways it doesn't speak well for me that I, 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 couldn't, take, <laughs> I couldn't take it, but I really I couldn't take it. Uh, but I think just to sort of amplify what John just said, uh, the, 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 the starkness, the, the, the fact that we really do live in two different realities, I think as much as we've all or we all know that now, I still think it's hard in some ways to process and really believe. Um, and so the disconnect between kind of what we know in our intellects and what we're experiencing itself, I think, is really jarring. Okay. Fair enough. So one of the places I want to go with this is to kind of parse the different kinds of audiences we indeed had for watching this debate. Uh, presumably, I, I find it rather amazing, but presumably there's about 5 to 10% of Americans who have not made up their mind on these two candidates. Based on you know your perspectives informed by your books and other scholarship, of course, what do you think from this debate might have been effective in trying to pull uh, those undecided voters one way or the other? I mean, it was a, a glorious mess of a debate and not very glorious at that. But what might have been of some benefit to either or both of the candidates in terms of trying to land those middle of the rotors? Um, either one of you, both of you can jump in. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Um, although I'm not sure this is a very helpful answer, but I I agree with a lot of the pundits who pointed out that Trump probably did not do anything to attract the middle of the rotors. I mean, I talked about how my right-leaning students were very pleased with what he did, but that's different than saying, here's some people who are really uh, in the middle, up in the air about this. And for me, it's hard to imagine that very many of them, after watching Donald Trump's performance Tuesday night, would say, oh, wow, it turns out he's my guy after all. Um, who knows if, if Biden was much better on this? I think he probably was. There was a sense that he was a real person. Uh, and so I think individuals who are maybe uh, looking for someone who has has some some empathy could have been attracted to that. They might even feel sorry for him for uh, some of the abuse that, uh, that he suffered. Uh, but for the most part, I'm not sure either of them expanded their uh, their base much or was able to, to attract the middle of the rotors that you're talking about. Sure. Well, Slate had mentioned, I think it was, they cataloged 128 interruptions uh, by Trump. I, I know that uh, Biden got in a few as well. Uh, how about for you, Jonathan? What's your sense of how this might have played? Any odds that some of the comments, at least, might have been able to get to people who are fluid versus fixed in their viewpoints, but enough of a mix that they're really in the middle of the road here? Well, I, I have two comments. The first is, I think this the single Jonathan, issue, there? if you can call it that, that seems to have gotten the most attention after the debate is uh, was Trump's refusal, reticence, however you want to characterize it, to condemn white supremacy and his call to the Proud Boys to uh, stand down and stand by. And in some of the focus groups about which I was reading yesterday from either 2016 Trump voters or undecideds, that seems to have generally landed very badly. 
Um, and so that certainly might be one place where, to the extent that anything can make a difference at this point, maybe that did. But I wanted to make another comment, which is, you know, it's interesting, uh, and you know, you you this has already come up that this was essentially an issue-free debate. Um, but you know what political scientists have generally long argued is that, and this is I think more and more true, is that people aren't really moved by issues. They are more moved by the kinds of um, emotions and visceral responses that I know we're going to be talking about today. And so, in that regard, maybe this is a backhanded compliment about the debate. In that regard, perhaps the debate presented to Americans the viscera. Of their candidate of the candidates in a way that really people relate to and can sort of form very quick, ju- very clear judgments about. Yeah, no, I think both of you are picking up on the fact that we have emotions and unconscious reactions that mean that you know, although the the electorate isn't always very well informed on the issues, we can all form a gut impression about the candidates themselves. Jonathan, I, I just alluded to fixed and fluid. It seems to me I need to go back to giving you a chance to maybe give a top-line summary on your book so that people know where you're coming from in regards to those two uh, you know, orientations. Yeah, so uh, the, the book that Mark Hetherington and I wrote in 2018, Prius or Pickup, uses these two categories of Americans, and of course it's all more complicated than that, but we use these two basic categories, fixed and fluid, which are terms that we used in place of the more traditional academic terms that we used in our previous book, authoritarians and non-authoritarians. And just in a very brief nutshell, our argument is that Americans have become, over the last generation or so, increasingly sorted by what we call worldview, or we might say personality type, into fluid folks who are more sort of open to the world, comfortable with difference, like novelty, have increasingly gravitated toward the Democratic Party, and fixed folks who are more comfortable with uh, sameness uh, and more reticent or uncomfortable with difference, have increasingly gravitated to the Republican Party, and that this sorting process by worldview and by really in kind of very gut-level instincts about how the world is organized have contributed to and in many ways explain the intensity of our political divisions today as opposed to, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Okay. And John, likewise, I mean, across your books, you know, not just predisposed, why don't you give uh, listeners a little bit of an orientation to where you're coming from? Right. Well, in the, uh, in the earlier book, Predisposed, um, you know, a lot of this would be perfectly consistent with what Jonathan just described, although we don't use words like fixed and fluid, um, the the basic pitch is that people's political beliefs are not just formed on the fly and in response to information that they obtain, but uh, also are influenced very heavily by their uh, physiology, their biology, possibly even their genetics, certainly their their, uh, neural uh, uh, structures. Uh, so then we go over a lot of the research, which does indicate that there are some variations across the political spectrum, depending on on these very biological uh, components. And then in the more recent book, I could try to specify a little bit more what exactly distinguishes the left and the right, and with a specific emphasis on people who are really ardent Donald Trump supporters, 
who it turns out are not typical conservatives. So I guess in some respects, it's a little bit more finer grained analysis, whereas the older book was just, you know, what's the difference between the left and the right? Now I'm trying to figure out why these ardent supporters of Donald Trump really are very different than a lot of conservatives who uh, are not ardent supporters of Donald Trump. So uh, I won't go into the details, but that's the, the basic motivation of the more recent book. Well, I think eventually in, in your answers, I'm, I'm happy to go there because obviously Trump is not conventional in so, all sorts of ways, including back to the Republican base. But I will take one thing here out of Predisposed, and, and both of you have, have written about this. It's the role of disgust. Uh, I am a, a facial coder, so I took uh, over 500 codes during the debate looking at the facial expressions of the candidates. And I'll go into some of the other findings a bit later, but I want to use one just now to tee up a question about disgust. When I was you know, examining, taking in the expressions of the candidates, Trump vastly exceeded Biden. Biden, 2% of his emoting involved the emotion of disgust. It was 22% for Trump, 10 times as much. So maybe staying with you, John, for just a moment, then Jonathan as well. Uh, you mentioned in Predisposed, the older book, talking about the disgust sensitivity of conservative voters. And if you want to bring in how that could be different than Trump supporters, I I'm altogether happy with that. Okay. No, that's a great, a great point. And I think it is true. Uh, there is a, a desire for purity, which has come up in research of others like uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, and and we find it in a more physiological test, whereas most people have these questions where they say, you know, would you react negatively if you uh, saw vomit on the street or something? We tried to measure that physiologically and see what when people's fight or flight response really zoomed up. And some people respond a lot more to disgusting things than others. So you do see that across the board with with conservatives. And certainly, I mean, if you think of the old Jim Crow laws, you know, drinking fountains. That, so this, I think, was a disgust reaction on their part, the idea that that you could get sick from drinking at the same drinking fountain that that uh, somebody else, in this case, a black person had had drunk from as is really a, a very nice connection, I think, with with disgust. The, the, the quick follow on I'll mention briefly with regard to the newer angle on the research is that what disgusts people may not be exactly the same or what disgusts all conservatives may not be exactly sure. the same. And, and this is where, uh, you know, it seems to me a lot of it is the being disgusted by outsiders, by people who are not like them. And I, so I think it's not just having a stronger disgust reaction because let's face it. I mean, a lot of liberals were pretty disgusted by, um, by COVID. Although now that I think about it, maybe that's not the right phrase. They were, they were concerned and sensitive about it. But uh, the disgust, I think, for a lot of Trump supporters was more, this is something that came from somewhere else. And, and, and that has then violated the purity of, of the in-group. So I think it, it picks up on the older work, but maybe has a slightly different twist. Sure. And that rejection can be everything from the virus coming from you know, Wuhan in China to uh, socialist anarchists in the street, immigrants and so forth. Um, Jonathan, you also you know, wrote about disgust a bit and we can go there. But uh, even just to broaden the question, based on the debate, which I know you didn't take in, but you have read about it and you've looked at focus group results and so forth. How well do you think Trump managed to play to getting his base out. Let's, you know, we could go whether or not his base is traditionally the conservative base or how much he owns the party at this point, but wondering how much he, you know, he has to get those people to the polls. And then there are, of course, people who are leaning Trump, but may not be, you know, decidedly his voter yet. 
how well do you think from what you gathered uh trump managed to uh you know tighten up his ranks uh strengthen his foundation and, and pull in some people who are leaning his way but not firmly in his camp well so i would say dan that in terms of his base and the the folks that um John in his new book describes as Trump venerators. You know, I think most of those folks are are they're they're already there with him. Uh, I think his base is very mobilized, and they feel like this election that they feel every bit as much as liberals that everything is at stake in Trump returning to office. So I'm not sure that there was that much of a change for that group. Um, My instinct is that those who are more on the fence uh, would have been more likely than not put off by Trump. Um, You know, there's this interesting research that uh, Tali Mendelberg did 20 years ago in a book called The Race Card, uh, where she talked a lot about implicit, implicit bias. And her argument was that um, because of the era we live in, an era of racial equality, I don't mean in actuality, but in professed norms anyway, uh, you can't really be sort of overtly uh, too, um, some people will use the word racist, other people will just use the word belligerent about race and expect to retain widespread support. And I think in 2016, Trump upended a lot of that because he spoke so directly about Mexican rapists, for example, and he seemed to do just fine. But I think what's happened since then is that for some people anyway, that rhetoric has just gone too far. And whereas there could at least be some sort of plausible deniability about some of Trump's sentiments in those areas in 2016, I think that's it's much harder to make that case now. So my 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 sense anyway is that for folks, for middle of the road folks, uh, more people would have been put off by the kind of messaging we're hearing from Trump than than would have been attracted to it. Okay, and of these, maybe I saw one survey that said about nine percent of the electorate could be leaning Trump's way, and of those, about half of them were a bit more up for grabs. So we might be talking just possibly four or five percent. Uh, for either one of you, do you think there's anything that Biden said in this debate, or in terms of his manner, that might have uh, softened, pried away some of that four to five percent who are leaning Trump's way, but you know haven't closed the haven't closed the deal? Well, it's possible that the ability of Biden, I think, to project empathy could attract some of those individuals in the, in the middle. Certainly, you remember he, he started telling a story of, of his son, Bo, and Trump hijacked that story and turned it into something about Hunter Biden. But even then, when, when Biden was talking about Hunter's uh, drug problems, you know, I think those are things that really present the candidate as a real person, and there might be some people who are attracted to that. Uh, on the flip side, you know, you asked Jonathan about, about what Trump did that might have appealed to his base. Uh, the thing I would add there, and maybe I'm jumping the gun on this and you wanted to talk no, about no, it. No, 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 quite all right. Is that, that um, the projecting of strength, which isn't, I think, one of the, not really an emotion, but it's still something that I think is very important to a lot of those people. And here, you know, for them talking over 
Joe Biden and talking over Chris Wallace is not an act of rudeness, but an indication of resolve and, and certitude uh, it indicates that, you know, this is a guy who's going to stand up and fight for their way of life. And I think that's that's probably the only thing I can think of that might have been something that really added to the basis already enthusiastic response to Donald Trump. Okay, well, it was interesting in the debate. This is the only place where the two candidates came out equally. Uh, they both showed the same amount of anger. Uh, you know, it was more intense in Trump's case, but perhaps all the interruptions got uh, Biden's, you know, dander up enough that, in fact, he did show a lot of uh, anger himself. Uh, let's go to the other side. So in in Biden's case, uh, he's got more people who are with him uh, based on the results out there right now and people who are leaning his way. But even so, there are some people who are leaning his way, but he hasn't closed the deal again. Uh, so either one of you, what do you think Biden did well in terms of ensuring that his his voters get to the polls, and for those who are leaning but not with him necessarily, what might have been helpful here, either that he did, or I guess we can go back to what Trump did that uh, might have pushed them further to Biden. Well, uh, I'll start on this one. I think one of the things that one of the I had a friend who um, said that the main reason he was watching the debate. Uh, was to sort of see whether Biden was going to drool on his tie. And, you know, I think the the sort of uh, a more general fear, perhaps, among people who are inclined to vote for Biden already, was just how well would he hold up? There were certainly questions, especially about some of his debate performances in the primaries and the fact that he sometimes trips on his words. And, you know, would he essentially perform well and solidly in the debate. And, and I think that he did pretty well on that score. So I think from the perspective of reassuring people just about that basic level of fitness, I think Biden, and maybe the bar was low, and maybe that was a strategic mistake by the Trump campaign uh, to raise all these questions about Biden's mental fitness. The bar might have been low as a result, but I think Biden certainly cleared that bar by by almost all accounts. Sure. And uh, John, anything you want to say on that front? I guess I would just say, I think the biggest boost for Biden came from Trump. I think it was, I, I think there will be a, a fair number of people who will be moving toward the Biden uh, camp simply, not because of what Biden did so much, but because of what they saw in Donald Trump. And, and that kind of strength and certitude and resolve that I mentioned before comes off to a lot of other people as as just uh, boorish behavior. And I think that the fact that that was in such bold relief on Tuesday night could end up helping Biden. I, I just want to add one thing to what John just said. I, I think one strength of Biden's throughout this entire process, and I mean going back to the primaries, including once it became a two-man race between him and Bernie Sanders, is this has been, even leaving aside COVID, although now COVID uh, itself is so important, this has been such a chaotic three and a half years that I think just the fact that Biden projects some basic sense of normal um, is going to make him very appealing to a lot of people. He, he, apart from whatever they think about his policies or whatever they discern in his ideology, 
I think the um, the 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 roller coaster that we've been on since Trump took office, uh, Biden is 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 an antidote to that, and I think some people are going to be swayed just by that fact. Um, yeah, I, I certainly have to agree that it seems like Biden, whose low key manner might not uh, be as attractive in other years, seems very attractive. Uh, potentially to people right now. Uh, I, I think back, of course, to 1968. In my case, I came back from Italy that year, and suddenly, you know, boys were fighting in the boys' room over whether or not their parents were Nixon or Humphrey supporters. Uh, I was pretty shocked. Um, I never thought I'd live through another year quite like that one, but uh, here we are. Um, what about the moments where Biden, you know, did just lose his cool a little bit, you know, shut up, man, and so forth? Uh, that perfectly fine? Do you think that hurt him with anybody? Because the only thing I'll say about that is, you know, sometimes I think that might have been a little unfortunate from his perspective, just because now I'm surprised at the extent to which some of the media commentary says, oh, you know, they were just both so so uh, eager to violate the rules and so willing to talk over the other. And as you mentioned before, the data tends to show that that's, yes, they both did it, but Donald Trump did it uh, by a, a factor of five or six more than more than Joe Biden. So I think by by kind of taking the bait on some instances and interrupting the president, that that maybe did leave open that possibility for people to say, well, a pox on both their houses. They were just both rude. When I think it, another interpretation would have been that uh, that really Donald Trump was the lead player in that rudeness. Sure. So I'm going to go back now and, and offer a few more uh things that I could conclude from the facial coding. And I'm wondering if any of them, uh, plugging them into your perspectives on biopolitics uh, are of interest to you. Uh, so one is that Trump's emoting was twice as negative as Biden's. So, uh, you know, politics is a blood sport, but one of them was far bloodier. Uh, Trump was more intense. Uh, besides the, cont- the disgust that I mentioned, uh, Trump showed three times more contempt, smirked more than Biden. Uh, particularly early in the debate before it was replaced by more disgust and anger. Uh, In Biden's case, he was twice as happy. He was also given to showing more surprise and uh, fear. Those are pretty uh, similar emotions often in human beings because we generally don't welcome surprises. Uh, He was also twice as sad, which can often play into empathy. Uh, They are pretty much equal in this debate based on anger and a category I added, which is skepticism, where you flash the ironic smile while making sarcastic remarks that put down the other party. Uh, so a lot of big differences here, not not slight differences. Any of that of interest to you based on you know how you look at politics and these candidates? So uh, I'm just thinking about the uh, one, one of the one of the characteristics you just mentioned, Dan, was contempt, right? And, yes, yes. And you said that, that Trump showed a lot more contempt than Three Biden. times as much. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Which, which is, I think, from what we know of them both is not surprising. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, thinking in terms of, I, I don't know how many people, I'm sure some do. I don't know how many people necessarily like witnessing displays of contempt in their leaders. I, I think the important point here is that for Trump supporters, the contempt is either justified or it, whether they like it or not, it's not going to it's not going to cause them not to vote for him. Sure. And, and, and so, 
you know, I, I think that the, you know, Trump is himself such a unique character in our recent politics that there's plenty of polling that shows that quite a number of Trump supporters don't like a lot about his personal qualities, but they support him anyway. Um, because he's a Republican, because they hate the Democratic Party more, because he's accomplished things that conservatives have long wanted to accomplish, for example, in terms of in terms of the courts. So sure. uh, so I, I, I guess I would say that, um, you know, I don't know how much the, the individual responses at this level from the candidates move voters. Um, but I but I do think that they're you know, you're, you're very likely to just accept what your side does, regardless of the, how, how they behave. Well, and, and how about the, and I, I agree with all of that. I'm curious about those who are the undecideds. They tend to be, you know, more, uh, you know, disillusioned about politics, so they have their own cynicism regarding it. Uh, they're also less emotionally engaged with it. Uh, clearly, though, if this five to ten percent swung Biden's way based on the current polling, it would be a landslide. If two thirds of those are really just shy Trumpers and they go for Donald Trump in the end, then we have a very close election. Um, so that I, I'm kind of putting in those veins. I, I agree with your premise that both sides can be pretty locked in. But uh, for those in the middle, uh, based on what I just mentioned on the facial cutting, John, anything that might strike you. First, a question, Dan, because you're the expert on this. So how, uh, if if somebody rolls their eyes and has one of those deep sighs, what, how's that, what emotion would that probably tie into? Uh, Well, the the sigh, I wouldn't, you know, is is more body language. I wouldn't go there as a facial coder. Typically when he did the sigh, though, I also saw smirking from Trump. So there was uh, fairly often uh, a thrusting upward of the chin, which brings you anger and disgust and sadness, but then there'd be a smirk as well. I mean, one of the ways I look at contempt is that often it can go with happiness, then it can suggest confidence. You can think of Tom Brady, the quarterback, for instance. When it goes with anger, however, which is so true for Trump, then it gets to be much more uh, scorched earth and uh, more poisonous in nature. Yeah, and, I'm with you completely yeah. on that. But I was still thinking a little bit more from Biden's point of view. And, and I think the response that a lot of people noticed that he was giving was more the eye rolls, like th- this guy is, you know, here he goes again kind of thing. And I was just curious what what emotion that might be. Tied well, to. T- tied to that often was that he bowed his head or he closes his eyes. That's right. And those are both sadness. Okay. So they can represent, you know, disappointment, which would be how a lot of us felt regarding the quality of the debate and the de- lack of decorum that was shown there. So I think that's part of it. The the one time there's a very unique expression on the face where you get a wince in the cheek. And because this was such a tumultuous debate, I don't think anyone could get there very easily. Biden showed it and he showed it in relationship to the part of the debate that had to do with COVID-19. So it was clearly empathy for those who suffered. Uh, but much of the debate, the sadness that Biden shown was actually, I think, you know, disappointment, uh, disillusionment with the quality of the debate. Yeah. And that, it seemed to me there was almost a disbelief too. that Biden was saying, oh, you know, my God, can you believe this guy is, is doing that again, which I guess wouldn't, wouldn't map onto any of those motions too directly. 
Well, yeah, I think early on in the debate, Biden was a bit shell-shocked, was my impression. Yeah. Uh, as the debate went along, and, and Trump made quite possibly some very decisive mistakes toward the end regarding Proud Boys and uh, you know where this election is headed in the courts and so forth, uh, I think Biden did much better in the second half. I would say the first half, one of the things I saw was his mouth dropped open. I think he was genuinely not prepared. As much as he prepared, I think he was not prepared for such a radical breach of decorum uh, as happened. And and the same would be true from what I've read from uh, Chris Wallace doing an interview. I think it was this morning or yesterday morning following the debate. I just want to, just a quick comment, because what you're describing, uh, Dan and John, about uh, Biden's responses is just making me think about the degree to which they really reflect the experience, I think, of so many Americans over the last three and a half years, which is, um, on the one hand, we all tell ourselves, um, we who view things a certain way, all tell ourselves not to be surprised anymore by any of the president's behaviors, but that doesn't prevent us from being shocked by them. And it's just interesting to hear you describe what sounds like Biden going through that kind of experience himself uh, dur- during the debate. Obviously, he was prepped for all of this, um, but there's no substitute for actually experiencing it. Sure. And as much as I've grown accustomed to uh, observing the facial expressions of Trump, uh, they still pull you in. I mean, there was mm-hmm. so many instances, I would say it was at a ratio of probably as much as five to one, where Trump's expressions diverted my eyes while Biden was speaking and rarely went the opposite direction. Well, and I mean, I'll just say about that, Trump's perhaps greatest strength for the entirety of his now 45 years in public life has been his ability to command attention. I mean, he's really just singular in that way. So I had a couple other places I I wanted to go to. Um, One was, uh, to the extent you might have looked at uh, what the pundits said, the editorial columnists, Anyone else, uh, the focus groups, was there anything that particularly struck you from those uh, other vantage points? Uh, anything you think they really hit on ex- exceedingly well? Anything they might have missed or gotten slightly wrong? Uh, being a facial coder, for instance, I was a little bit annoyed that someone talked about the great deal of, of uh, anger going on in the, in the debate, but uh, having facially coded so many people in so many debates the level of anger wasn't actually what uh, distinguished it. It was the amount of disgust shown by Trump. Uh, that was remarkably above what I would have normatively seen. That kind of fits with some of the things that I found in my recent survey on st- strong Trump supporters. The, contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, they don't tend to be all that angry. In fact, they, they tend to score higher on social well-being. Uh, and, you know, of course, part of that could be that their guy has been in the White House the last three and a half years, and that makes them feel feel pretty good. But even before that, there was a lot of research showing that conservatives tended to have a higher sense of social well-being. And so I think you're right to pick up on that, Dan, that it, it might, it, I think anger is not is not quite the right way to describe it. Uh, contempt, I think, comes closer to that. They, they frequently can't believe that other people can't see the world the way they do. And and the fact that they don't is is perceived as a failing on their part, and they can be contemptuous of that. But I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I don't think anger is at the core of what Trump supporters are all about. I I went to a Trump rally. And again, of course, these were 20,000 people 
who all agreed with each other. So why should they be angry? But the the degree to which they were upbeat about things really uh, was was kind of shocking to me. I think they feel, you know, keeping America safe from these outsiders who are at the gates. Uh, that that to them is an uplifting duty almost. And and if they can fulfill that duty by supporting Donald Trump and supporting the Second Amendment and all these things, then I think that that really is is something that makes them feel good. So I think in that sense, a lot of of those people, uh, those of us on on the other side, uh, need to kind of recalibrate a little bit and not just think that these are a bunch of of bitter, angry individuals. Sure. You know, just um, just thinking about sort of the just the the media landscape and the aftermath of the debate, I do I do try to make a point to visit uh, foxnews.com every day just to see what they are emphasizing and not emphasizing. And, you know, in all the usual stops that I make, the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, front and center were both uh, Trump's trying to undermine the credibility of the election and, of course, his comments or lack of comments about white supremacy. And that's just not what Fox was highlighting at all. In fact, um, at a certain point in the day yesterday, there was nothing on the front screen that I could see about his white supremacy comments. There were there were there were articles and links about Antifa and you know disorder in American cities. And I think again that just speaks to uh, the fact that we're in a moment now where we're not just disagreeing about facts. We are just completely inhabiting two different factual universes. Um, and so I think that's just uh, th- that unsurprisingly, but still notably, uh, was evident in just what different websites, what different news organizations were covering yesterday. Sure. So I have two more questions here before we conclude. And one is, uh, and both are, are really speculative because, uh, you know, first of all, the election has not happened. We don't know whether uh, Biden, if the polls stay true, will actually have enough of a lead that it's decided, if not on election night, shortly thereafter. But as we all know in this conversation, there are chances this could be headed to the Supreme Court. This could be headed to Congress, specifically the House of Representatives, where each state gets one vote. Or, as Trump alluded to, this could lead to not just the poll watchers showing up in mass, but street demonstrations and the prospect of violence. I mean, emotionally, what can be done based on these this kind of biopolitical disposition to calm the waters and, and get each side to see each other and respect each other. I, I think it's it's difficult at best. Thomas Friedman has Tom Friedman has said that he's more worried about the state of democracy in this country than he's ever been. And he's drawing on his experiences in Lebanon as the country was falling apart in a second civil war. What what perspective might you offer on on where we could be headed in the month of November? Well I think it's difficult to be optimistic and I'm not sure the approach that I use or that Jonathan uses can uh, can in, in any way talk us down from the ledge. I mean, it's, uh, there's nothing we can do that's going to uh, reduce the danger. One of the things I've always hoped, though, is that if we would appreciate a little bit more the depth of other people's feelings, that it might make us a little bit less frustrated. It's certainly not going to keep us from having a disaster after November 3rd. Uh, but I, I think in the long run, we do need to uh, step back a little bit and say these people aren't just uninformed. And they're not just being, you know, willfully obtuse. They're they are wired up this way, and that's probably not going to change. 
And that sounds really pessimistic, but I think it also can be just a little bit liberating. And I think if we work within that framework, we can say, you know, we might have to compromise with these people but rather than deliberating and, and trying to talk them out of their, their views. We have to be a little bit more accepting. But then because both sides have to be accepting, we have to say, look, there's, there's really no solution to this except to, uh, to come to a meeting of the minds. No, that's wrong. We can't meet, a, meet minds, but we can meet policies. A lot of these things are very compromisable. Uh, the level of immigration, for example. I mean, we, we can, liberals are going to have to accept less immigration than they want. Uh, Trump supporters are going to have to accept more than what they want. Uh, things like that, I think, can happen. That's not going to stop us from disaster after the election. But I think that's the long run solution to all this. Yeah, just, John, I just, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, just to follow up, I mean, John's point is a really important one. I agree. I don't think there's anything saving us from tumult after November 3rd. But, you know, the longer term challenge that we face is that the stakes of politics are so high. You know, the kinds of differences that John has been writing about for many years, and I and Mark Hetherington and I have been writing about, those differences have always been there to some degree, but they haven't always been manifest in this kind of acrimonious politics. So it's the context that has changed in a way that has made these worldviews or these instincts or these predispositions so politically relevant and have contributed to an environment in which it just feels like every loss is a disaster. And so, you know, I, I guess the most hopeful thing I can say is insofar as we have had periods in our past where those same differences were not reflected in civil war levels of emotions, um, one can hope that we can return to that more ratcheted down state at some point in the future. Sure. Well, as we've had these discussions, for instance, on the Electoral College and, you know, uh, misrepresentation in states with uh, fewer people getting, you know, same number of votes for senator and so forth. Uh, I've been thinking back to England in the 1830s and 40s and the rotten boroughs and all the debates about changing the political system there. But my question, just leaving that aside, is are there any people out there with the stature and the acceptance from both sides who in any way can play a mediating force? Uh, we do not have Walter Cronkite with us. Uh, we have a fractured media landscape. Is Does the military play any possible role? How, how can we find some voices out there that can be respected by both sides? Is that even possible? Have you come across them in your, your thoughts on this? No, I guess Dan, I would have to be a skeptic with regard to that. I, I, I don't know of any individual out there who could uh, could actually bring bring the two sides together. I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I agree entirely with Jonathan. Uh, one of the things I tell my students is democracy is for losers. And I, I, that sounds kind of flip, but it really is. Democracy is designed so that the losers can say, you know, this is a bad thing that we lost this election. But guess what? In two years or four years, we get to fight a fair race again. And if our ideas are better, we're going to win. And so... You know, there's no reason to burn down the house. And what's truly unfortunate about the situation right now is that we don't have that sense. We, we have the sense that if we lose, the world is simply going to be over. And, and certainly Donald Trump has fanned these flames that they're not going to get a fair treatment. And therefore, why should we respect democracy? Why should we just wait four years for another election when that one will be rigged as well? 
So that's the real polluting element that we're facing right now. And uh, yeah, to, to answer your question in a pessimistic fashion, Dan, I don't see anybody who can fix that. Well, okay. and, and to, to add to John's pessimism, one person I've been thinking about in this context recently is Colin Powell, who, when in 2008, Colin Powell announced that he was voting for Barack Obama, that was a big deal, you know, because, of course, he had been a secretary of state under George W. Bush. He'd served under Republican presidents, and he had a certain gravitas that particularly, and I know that John has written about this um, in his new book on securitarians, you know, John McCain Republicans would have respected somebody like Colin Powell in a way that would maybe move them to rethink who they were going to vote for on the basis of that opinion. But in the age of Trump, I just, I, I just, as soon as you announce, and this isn't just, this is not just on one side or the other. As soon as you announce that you are for one side, you are immediately and completely discredited by the other side, by definition. And so in, in that context, nobody can stand above the fray. Sure. And Colin Powell would have been the one person I would have possibly in an earlier lifetime have, have cited as that possible reconciler. I mean, I was struck by the fact that the some of the generals in the uh, you know, top of the command said that if they were pushed enough by Trump, they might rather consider resigning. And I thought that's exactly the wrong thing to do uh, in that it allows for, you know, interim appointments uh, and God knows who exactly. Yeah, I think uh, you are making the, the right distinction. I, I think it's important to talk about the ardent Trump supporters and then maybe a lot of other Republicans. And yes, I think there could be people and Colin Powell's a great nominee uh, who, who might fill that role and, and be satisfying to both the more traditional Republicans and a lot of Democrats. But uh, you're right that among the ardent Trump supporters, that's just not going to cut it. And certainly John McCain didn't cut it for them. They've got a very elevated sense of who's with them, you know, who really feels it in their bones, who is what I like to call a securitarian and who isn't. And Colin Powell simply isn't in their in their in their view. And so to get that group is going to be just about impossible. And I think what we're what we're looking at in the future of American politics to see, can we really function as a polity? With this, you know, fill in the blank, I'm going to say 25 percent of the population that is just completely frustrated, uh, especially now that they've had their moment in the sun. They've had their guy in office for a while. And then to go back, uh, even if it's a, a traditional Republican who's in office, they're simply not going to be satisfied with that individual. And what is politics going to look like with that slice of minority? But they're definitely a slice of the population that's simply not playing the rules anymore. Sure. Um, before we wrap up, uh, last comment. I mean, that was that was uh, I thought very powerful and true. Uh, Jonathan, anything you want to say in closing here before I, I go to the wrap up? Uh, just that the these divisions that we've been talking about have been they've been a lot they've been in the making for many years, and they are just not going to disappear overnight. So I think you know from the perspective of liberals, for example, even if Biden wins, uh, we are going to be living with this kind of acrimony for, I think, unfortunately, I think for a long time. Sure. I just watched a documentary on social media and how that plays into this. And although we didn't bring that into the discussion today, that gave me no hope whatsoever, uh, barring massive changes there that we're going to be able to bring the temperature I, I, I Just down. by the way, I saw, right, it was the social dilemma. I just watched it as well. And 
I was similarly dismayed when it, when it was over. Yeah. So I want to thank you both so much for your time here today. Uh, this has been a special roundtable episode of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight with a focus on the 2020 presidential race. With me has been John Hibbing, the author of Predisposed and the Secretarian Personality, Jonathan Wheeler, whose books include Prius or Pickup. Uh, to check out other episodes or my books or other activities, please go to my website at www.sensorylogic.com. If you have a follow-up question for Jonathan, John, or both of them, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please give it a five-star rating or review online. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.